Hi, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesson. I almost called it No Country because we were just, <laughs> you had just mentioned No Country, but no, we're Lost Explorers now. How are you today, Chris? Well, David, I'm I'm good. I've I've got some uh, exciting news to uh, follow up with, but you know, I mean, I think considering that here we are in post-cultural society, uh, you know, in amidst vapid yet rabid ideology, hypnotized, horn-swoggled consumerism. And hapless technological servitude. I, I figured I'm doing okay today, given that. Excellent. No, I'm glad to hear that. I have been busy, but I've been feeling pretty good. I've uh, made some real strides in not acting on the compulsion end of my OCD. And Ooh. it's... It's Ooh, made congrats. Thank you. And it's made, it's made life uh, a lot more vivid and a lot more interesting. <laughs> and I, I think, I think I was, you know, I was driving to go pick up some stuff from the store today. And I, uh, I was looking at, I was, everything seems so vivid and sharp. And, you know, it's because I don't have this swarm of bees uh, in my head all the time. And then I started wondering, I, was like, I wonder if part of, sorry, I have my head down. I'm drawing while I'm talking. Um, I wonder if one of the reasons why a person enacts the compulsion end of obsessive compulsive disorder in the first place is to preserve a sense of mental instability uh, as a kind of self-imposed crutch, a subconscious enacting of the thing that they claim to hate so much as a matter of excusing their lack of realized potential wow well as heavy as that was i think it's completely reasonable to agree and say yeah that's not only possible i i think it might be likely but to jump back to vivid which is such a great word when you first said that, my thought was that a little bit extra vivid was how you appeared to other people, particularly, say, Rios. And I wonder if that's not part of it, too. <laughs> yeah. David's getting more vivid. He's getting more vivid. He's quite like, wouldn't that be interesting if you could see the level of a person's chi by how vivid they were, the, the health of their, it's chi, right? The, the energy. Yeah, that's the yeah. word. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, that's the idea. That's exactly mm -hmm. the whole program is that you can. Mm -hmm. Or that mm -hmm. we do, we just don't know how to interpret those perceptions. That's a very, uh, that's one view. One is that we all are receiving that. We just don't know what to do with it. Uh, but yeah, and I think, you know, we've talked about from the point of view of what kids and dogs think, you know, that's mm -hmm. working on certainly a pre-linguistic, uh, non-verbal, you know, uh, basis. And I think that's not very far away from auras and chi, you know, I really don't. I also, this week had that 
job interview. I wanted to find out. Tell us. I don't think I did very well during the interview. Were you vivid? Were you vivid? Was, vivid experience? I was too vivid. Uh-oh. And I, okay, let me describe this particular scenario and I'll lift my head up. So I'm talking into the mic. I just, I really like drawing while talking now. It's, oh, I understand. It's I encourage that. Um, so I, I go to this meeting and it's a Zoom. It's much like Zoom, but it's something called WebEx, which is a much more sinister sounding version of Zoom. And I go into it and it gives me this big message and it says, interviewees will be unable to mute their microphone throughout the interview. Oh, said, oh okay. All, All right. right. Interesting. Interesting. So they, they blink on and I see three tables, right? A kind of round table. And there is a, a mid fifties gentleman in an OU polo and a crew cut who introduces himself as the art director of the bank. And then there are three women. The one on the right is younger. She's the current uh, copywriter that they have on staff. I suppose she'll be moving up to copywriter two. Should I be hired into copywriter one and then two women, I'm assuming from HR who never say a word the entire interview. They, they never say anything. And they ask me questions. They say, uh, so tell us a little bit. We don't really understand what it is that you do. Tell us a bit about your business. So I tell them about it. And they say, well, let, let us tell you this. Here at the bank, we work with some big egos. Have you ever worked with people with big egos? And I said, well, I work with really? authors. They said so, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Huh. And and I said, well, I work with authors, so yes, I'm, I'm. The question that they were asking me was, when I'm when I'm fixing somebody's book, and they have a big ego, how do I handle that? With the idea being that there might be some correspondence from a CEO or something, and they might, you know, kind of. And I'm just getting, I'm getting these vibes, and you know, I had Chat GPT write me out some questions for them because I had no interest in brainstorming actual questions to ask them. So I just asked AI to do it for me. And I asked them those two questions. <laughs> and then when I was done with my second question, I said, all right, that's what I got. Thanks. And they were quiet. And we held a silence for about 30 seconds where yeah, I looked at them. That's a very long time. And they looked at me and I looked at them. And they looked at me. And finally, they said, well, we'll be getting back. <laughs> I hung up. Rio said, how did that go? I said, I don't think I, I don't think I got that one. We were not, uh, we were not vibing. It only lasted 15 minutes in total. And I asked some friends and they said, well, some initial screening interviews only last 15 minutes. I said, no, no, no. But here's the thing. I take everything that you say very seriously. I take everything that you say very seriously. So when you are suspicious of a particular path that I'm going down, I take that seriously. I'm not going so far as to say what you said influenced me, right? But what I will say is that 
my reasoning for it is colored by your assessment of it last episode where, you know, man, I think that in this particular incarnation, I'm, I might be meant to do this independently. My challenge in this incarnation might be to figure out how to build a life independently. And we'll see how that works. It's worked out, to be honest, pretty, it's had its ups and downs, but it's worked out pretty well so far. Well, you know, the whole thing has changed too. I mean, I think there's more reason Forget the mechanisms and the possibility of working independently on one's own for oneself. I think there's more incentive to do that than ever before, because I think just as the percentage that big time publishers take from writers, when writers are really, you know, the creative content there, uh, that's what certainly corporate business of any kind takes from the individual in on many levels you don't have to have any sort of belief in a soul or even even metaphorically just in terms of of energy mental attitude physical well-being sleep you know orientation in life i think that the the demands are 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 uh are too great you know it's it's business it's really the it's it's a profit and loss thing you got to look at it it's if you if you really did do that uh you 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 know it would be pretty clear that that's just not it's not a good proposition you know it may not be the wrong proposition for everyone and and certainly not at every time depends on what your other goals are but i think it's a lot nastier and stupider and mainly stupider you know yeah exactly stupider well i've been really hyped on i've been talking to whatever artistic creative friend i can about this but i'm just really hyped on the idea without getting too far into detail about it, about potentially launching some courses. Uh, You doing some courses, I have some courses in mind, and really getting out there on platforms like YouTube and sort of building an entire presence around uh, synthesizing information that we are kind of autodidactically or otherwise experts in and presenting that to people for a big a big price point because with, as artists the the biggest issue that we always run into is our price points when we sell books the margins on those can be so small especially when you get into ebook that the number of units you have to sell becomes so astronomically high to make even a decent living that it can feel impossible but with a course especially once you get into the 5 6 7 course range on your website now you can sell those for a little bit of a higher price point and perhaps maybe have a not wealthy but but comfortable life doing your thing oh i think that's totally possible and i'm i'm going to definitely launch into the courses because i just have so many ideas you know in a curriculum And I think they're really fun. And I think that one of the things that I will do that's different and it's something that we can build on, uh, I make the actual performance delivery element 
a part of the theme of the course and vice versa. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, you know, that's tricky to do, but to actually put attendees or, or people who check it out into the position of, say, you know, characters in a novel, you know, mm-hmm. so it, it's closing that distance. Um, and I think there are a lot of really cool things to be done on that. So, look, I think that it's the bank's loss. Uh, I think they're not vivid enough for you. And I, I don't know. It all sounds like it came to the ending it needed to come to. I'm not. I'm a good interviewer. But I'm not good in an interview. That's what I'll I say understand perfectly. Mm-hmm. I think that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's what they said, too. That's probably what they said, too. Yeah, that Um, pause, that pause. But I trained doing podcasts. You have to train yourself to pause. It's the one lesson that I have learned, Uh, especially on my other podcast, Agitator. Kelby likes to take a second to think about something before he speaks. And so working with him, I've learned to let pauses hang for sometimes five, six seconds so that he can, because he's not somebody who jumps right in. And that's been really useful to me to be able to just sit with it. I think it was, I cannot, I think this might've been in Pushkin's Children by Tatiana Tolstoya. She was talking about a difference between Americans and Russians. And she said that Americans cannot stand silences whereas Russians can sit for minutes in silence and be completely comfortable. I think that's one of many things that David Lynch picks up on. I mean, if you put aside the, any cinematography sort of issues and think about him as a director with acting talent and mm-hmm. as interpreting a script, whether he's written it or not, he uses just these absolutely absurd silences or absurdity enters in because of the silences. And that, you know, really builds, that was connecting back to Harold Pinter and to some extent Albie, but all the way back to Beckett, you know, that that kind of just breaking with the expectation patterns of, of conversation and this presumed but never examined social rhythm. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. does know the time length of, that's an acceptable, but but if you say it as you just did, it sounds weird. Everyone would go, "Well, I don't know." It's like you know, but they certainly know when they feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I figured that uh, when that silence started in that interview, uh, I felt like I was squaring up with big egos, and I wasn't going to be the one to crack. I wasn't going to say. Uh, mm, uh, I was, we can sit here and stare at each other. That's fine. You don't scare me. My life is better than yours. <laughs> That's exactly what I thought, you know, what I was going to say you were conveying. You don't scare me and I'm not yeah. paranoid. <laughs> and I'm, yeah, yeah. You don't scare me. And why is everybody looking at me and I'm not paranoid? <laughs> well, it's, I drew, it's, I drew a little man while we were talking. Oh, my, oh my God, my, you did. You yeah. did. Oh no. <laughs> I, oh, that's vivid, man. That's yeah, vivid. It's, it's vivid. 
Yeah, that really is. And, you know, it makes me think that this isn't the tip for the week, but for the next interview, and if uh, any of our listeners are facing some sort of job interview or hoping for one, out of all of the nonsense, bullshit, uh, self-help stuff that's out there from LinkedIn and all these other companies about how to succeed in interviews, I reckon one of the best things I've ever read on that is Harry Stack Sullivan, the psychologist, brief on how to do the first diagnostic psychotherapy interview. And if you read that, it's just fed, whether whatever, you know, you just switch roles in that and you've got it. But it's extremely wise and very practical. And it it just doesn't require much explanation. You know, you you get the whole framework just reading the dialogue. Mm-hmm. But he does give background. So Harry Stack Sullivan, well known for his uh, his interview techniques. I wrote that down. Do you have a band for us? I today? do, I do, and and they're fun and they're uh, beyond the pale and unpc. They're called the Fidget Spinners. I love it. The fidget spinners. And the group, they're all on the spectrum or a spectrum of some serious kind. But they work together. The whole is is less insane than the sum of its parts. But they're a bit of a handful individually. I like that idea. And their album is called, and this becomes an enormous source of controversy that builds the brand. The album is called Anxiety is a Choice. I love, that's my favorite. That's the best one. I love that one. (laughs) That's great. I I drew a, while you were talking, I drew a little fidget spinner. Oh, that's fin. And they've got another sort of symbol mascot. You know, the tardigrade? I do know the tardigrade, the little worm thing with the moss the whole mouth. Piglets or, yeah, yeah. Those little water bears or moss, little tiny microbial creatures. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, they really are into that particular totem life form because it's it's just so weird and kind of grotesque looking, but beautiful. And it is so resilient. You can find it on the at the poles. You can find mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just insane. And their slogan is tardigrade, not retrograde. I like it. Tardigrade, not retrograde. Anxiety is a choice. I'll come back to that because that mirrors a discussion I had with my friends this week. What is your aphorism? Okay, I got two because the first one's kind of bumper stickery, but I still thought I'd have to share it. Be prepared to be offended, and you will be. That's the bumper sticker in the uh, parking lot one. Here's a more serious one. And I think this is, I had a few specific individuals in mind, but I think this really applies. 
your particular idiosyncratic modes of self-deception arise out of perversions or overindulgences of your greatest strengths and most likely your single greatest strength, your shining characteristic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. How do you think in idiosyncrasy, what's the, the, the degradation process? What's the entropy that leads it from a characteristic to an idiosyncrasy? That's a good question. Uh, that, that really gets to a lot of things I've been thinking about for the, the memory and consciousness book, because it's about a very peculiar form of gradation measurement, some, some kind of quantification of what is conceptual for starters. So it's difficult on that level, but mm -hmm. not even sure how to, how to categorize it in conceptual terms. And the moment we start putting up any kind of measuring grid at all, it seems to me like this, whatever our subject is there just flitters away or yeah, right. vanishes or, I mean, sometimes I feel it coming through the grid closer to me. And I just, you know, it's all, I, it just, evaporates around that way so i don't know where that point is i have a feeling that what makes it hard to pin down is that it occurs on a completely one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one scale yeah there yeah. is a repeating algorithmic rule framework for it um because it it, it couldn't survive if if it if it, you know, didn't have that strange characteristic. Yeah, and I think it becomes the strangeness. Yeah, my my thoughts on it were, would be that it would become more and more perverted uh, as a defense mechanism, once again, against realizing that characteristics potentiality, because turning a characteristic into a into a quirk is an act of camouflage in a way. It's like putting... Totally. It's like putting armor on it that you you think you're putting a suit of armor on it, but everybody else sees you putting a clown outfit around that characteristic, you know? And I think that by, by doing that, I mean, idiosyncrasies in particular, um, they're deceptive in that you think of them as being unique, right? And perhaps there's something to be said for the re repulsion of something as uh, uh, widespread as a particular characteristic, right? Um, but I do, I do think that it has mostly to do with the idea that a characteristic, especially if it's your your shining characteristic, you know, your best characteristic, um, we tend to throw a you know throw a tree branch into those bicycle spokes uh to keep us from ever having to to realize that and just just as a final point on that i think there's two different types of potentiality there's there's uh, a fear of potentiality with regards to failure right that that characteristic might lead you to failure and this needs to be protected but there's also a a, a fear of certain characteristics as leading to an end in which you are actually just normal, 
and you though you might not have failed it turns out you're just kind of average so you spice them up with a clown suit <laughs> oh there's so much going on there well the one thing I, I i that's a huge topic of of tremendous interest from many different angles but i think the last point that you mentioned i thought was really interesting because it, it touches on something that um I wouldn't, I don't even know if I've been thinking of it's, it's more, it's been thinking me or about mm -hmm. me, mm -hmm. but it's, it struck me this, this fear of failure, uh, which is the way the phrase that I use most, but it can be, it's a subset of a self-esteem problem. And of course I see that potentially a lot in my student age group. Um, Fortunately, the, this group, this uh, semester is is pretty good. So anyone in that category really stands out. So I think about fear of failure, and I think about that in myself too. And it occurred to me that one of the problems with fear of failure in a specific instance is that it's not specific, that I think somehow the mind is already projecting a pattern. And I think that is is really, you know, it's not just the fair distance. Oh, what's that going to mean next time? You know, the I'm not saying that's conscious, but I'm saying that's very much a part of the, the emotional active response to it. So it's a weird ghost thing where it instantly sort of triggers a future that absolutely doesn't exist. Right. Right. You know? I like that. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, I like it. That's very disturbed. That's yeah. it's like yeah. a John Wayne Gacy type type. Yeah, picture. I mean, yeah. would you want that figure doing a children's story hour? <laughs> uh, no, that's another. You oh, have. I've I've got your challenge. Yep. All right. Let's go. Okay. Now you are free to to. Uh, I didn't have any particular people in mind with this but that doesn't mean that you won't okay. but you you still can create a character but i was thinking of that uh of whitman's the sleepers i dream in my dream all the dreams of the other dreamers and i become the other dreamers and that's an idea that sort of circulates a lot. i love that whitman poem though but here's the scenario and this is called other bodies other dreams a husband and wife get into a car accident, a serious car accident, and end up in simultaneous comas. For reasons unknown, something peculiar happens during the full month that they're unconscious. They relocate. They shift out of their own bodies and into the others. 32 days after the car accident, they wake to find that the husband's consciousness is in the wife's body and vice versa. What now? Freaky Friday style. Yes. Yeah, so well, uh, yeah, but it's husband and wife. It's, I think it's different. I don't know. Yeah, it is. I so like that. Well, it I, is I do like that. Yeah. I do like that. It's, um, it reminds me also, especially that Whitman poem, 
recently did a podcast episode on Izumi Suzuki's Terminal Boredom, a collection of short stories. Uh, Suzuki was, uh, she was a, a sci-fi author in Japan in the early 70s. She was married to a jazz musician named uh, uh, Kazuo Abe, who died very young of a barbiturate overdose. She had a daughter. She bopped around doing some nude modeling, uh, being in movies and writing these stories. One of the stories in this proto-cyberpunk collection is called You May Dream, and it's a future in which excess, there's too many people, and the government's solution to this is to hold a lottery, and some people get put into deep, deep cryosleep for a period of time, and while you're in that cryosleep, you inhabit the dreams of other people. And as it turns out, inhabiting the other dreams, all you are is essentially a huge annoyance. Like everybody hates these dream floaters who go into other people's dreams. So (laughs) bringing it down to bed. Well, I, 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 the idea is beautiful, you know, and Mm -hmm. however it appears so often, but I think it always has some appeal, but I like your take of it just being perhaps, you know, people who are a little bit, uh, not just too vivid, but just annoying. I like that. Mm -hmm, mm I like that. All right. Well, I will work on this. What now? I do like this as a prompt. And I'll just probably use, well, there is one particular spouse that I know better than others. So <laughs> I, I didn't say it, but I, yeah. <laughs> oh, so uh, this is the part of the show now where I read Chris's text message that he sent to me this week about what he'd like to talk about on the show. We can choose from any of these various and sundry topics. Here we go. Architecture in the imagination. Theme parks, dream parks, utopia. Postmodern models of hell. The Garden of Earthly Delights by Bosch. Nomadic traditions of players, troubadours, caravans, carnival and circus. Seasonal intermittent life of of country fairs agricultural festivals, but if the circus or the carnival doesn't leave town, if the festival doesn't end, strange distortion of time. The local market meets theater, make them laugh. Donald O'Connor in Singing in the Rain, Casbah, Camelot, Versailles, the idea of park for the peasants, contrast Central Park with the dreamland peak era of Coney Island, contrast Duchamp's Bois en Valise, Mm-hmm. And Cornell's boxes, outsider art installations, Coney Island, Disneyland, Asian parks, family entertainment, Las Vegas, adult entertainment, gambling, and sex. And I'll leave the rest out of that because you might want to get to those. And I don't want to spoil them. Oh, that was a really terrific read. I really appreciate hearing that. That's uh, There's something really instructive about hearing someone else's voice and a good voice and a really good read project back what you've written it's very very i think that's a beautiful uh a tip for the whole podcast series i think everybody should strive for that it's really you know i don't think it's too much to ask of of a partner or roommate or something but then maybe they're not as they're not going to be as good a reader but that was just and you're getting in the groove with this you've kind of this is how we slip in man this is how we get vivid together bro this is how we get 
vivid. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly yeah. right. Well, okay. Um, well, I think that, that one way to start this would be to uh, just recap sort of briefly where we've come from, uh, looking at architecture as a means not only of organizing space, but really defining space, which is kind of weird when you think about it, an activity that defines itself as it goes. That's kind of a, a pretty crucial idea. So we said that architecture is one way of looking for a new paradigm of this strange post-cultural, maybe post-civilization era. Uh, but certainly we've kind of worked our way through residential architecture. We've worked through architecture metaphorically uh, as a place of sheltering daydreams and the private life of the mind and intimacy. And then I think a really interesting episode focused on the home, particularly as a time shelter, as a way of controlling time, protection from external socialized institutionalized time. And we got around to architecture in terms of sacred spaces and certainly mainstream religious buildings, but the larger idea of some sort of necessarily contemplative and intimately uh, friendly environment, but something that really opened up those channels in a communal congregation social sense, because it, you can't just have a, a church or a mosque or a synagogue for one person. You know, that's not, that's for something private and outsider artist at home. Uh, but we struggled with the idea of what is in this growing, increasingly secular age, what is the secular equivalent of sacred space. And I thought you had some really interesting things to say about that. And we came around to thinking, well, if you're talking about a secular sacred space, you'd have to look at Disneyland. Mm -hmm. And for the purposes of the discussion, we'll think of the original Disneyland in Anaheim, because I think the formula has rolled out. We, we, if, we, if people want to think of the Disney empire, that's fine. But what you and I were really talking about is, is the emblem, but physicalized with a footprint mm -hmm. that people mm -hmm. actually walk around in. So it's it's got to be architectural. And I think it's easy just to talk about that. Um, so maybe... If I could, I, th I think you're in agreement with that being the, the kind of the vector we've been on. I'd like to hear just your, if, if I said Disneyland to you, not Disney films, but Disneyland, what does that trigger in you? Heat. First of all, it triggers a lot of heat. I have been to Disneyland so many times because my grandparents used to live in Orlando. So going to visit them during the summer meant going to all the different theme parks to the point, you know, we had the season passes and we were going to Disneyland on a daily basis. 
The other thing <clears throat> that it means to me is, is expense. It's extraordinarily expensive to go to Disneyland. When we would go, uh, besides that season pass, we wouldn't buy anything. Not ice cream, not snacks, maybe some bottled waters. But other than that, we were good to go. So those are practical, physical things that come to mind. The first thing that I think of, you might be aware of this, you might not, but there is a class of person, a type of person, it's very prominent on TikTok, and that is the adult Disneyland fan. Yes. The kind of the kind yes. of person, <gasps> the kind, <laughs> the kind of person who doesn't just enjoy going to Disneyland, in particular, isn't looking forward to going to Disneyland because they have kids. These are childless people. But people who live all over the country, and every single one of them that I've seen has been American, uh, who base their entire lives around their four times a year trips to Disneyland. They are yeah. super fans. They're always wearing Disney gear. Uh, they 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 say things like it's the most magical place on earth without a hint of irony or cringe in their voice. They're completely sincere about their love for Disneyland. That is the most prominent image that comes to mind when I think of it. It's that kind of person, that kind of attraction. Also, you know, having been to to Disneyland and having been to Harry Potter world, I haven't been to the new star Wars world. Um, it's, it's pretty cool craftsmanship. You know, I have an uncle who did a lot of engineering work on Disneyland and uh, he, he's a really smart guy. And he, at the time I was too young to appreciate the kind of things he was telling me about, but uh, you know, there's a lot of work that goes into them. They are major construction projects that, require a lot of very skilled artisans to be hired and brought in the same way that Disney is now in the practice of hiring Oscar winning directors to make superhero films. They, they bring talented people in to make it. So it doesn't, Disneyland has never struck me as being cheap the way going to frontier city here in OKC strikes you as a little bit cheap, a little bit like you might not want to get, on the roller coaster, you're not you're not sure how many more spins that thing has in it. Uh, Disneyland has a gloss of being very expensively made. I have to say, and I will try to explain that I am. stunned but in a delightfully curious unexpected way by not just the essence of your response but the whole rendition and i would not have i've never heard you vibrate on that frequency before i'm vivid bro <laughs> well yeah it, it, it is very vivid it, it it's so pragmatic and Well, let me like my my reaction to Disneyland just is on an entirely different level. And I'm not saying it's any better at all. It's just you'll see the difference. 
I just go instantly to the mythos of <laughs> Disney. I can't, you know, the, the fact that Walt might be cryogenically frozen under Pirates of the Caribbean, or, you know, that uh, Sam Cooke, at the height of his record, not just recording singing star, but recording executive, the first Black American to be president of his own record label, out really negotiating a lot of talent. He had like 30 acts signed up. He was the first Black person, entertainer, star, that Walt Disney granted personally 24-hour private access to Disneyland unconditionally. And the story gets odder because Walt was very chummy with J. Edgar Hoover mm. for many reasons. And of course, there's a, this, you know, it was very strategic to be friends with Hoover, however insidious that you know result might have turned out to be. But J. Edgar got wind of Walt granting this special privilege to Sam Cooke and forced Walt to veto it. So, and then there are a lot, I mean, every time I've been there, something absolutely bizarre has happened. I might've told the story about being trapped on the It's a Small World ride with a really crazy friend from my past. And we had met up after, you know, 10, 15 years, not, you know, seeing each other. And, we did acid in Disneyland and getting stuck on the ride with the animatronic song continuing and the little dolls going on. <laughs> on. I, my friend was three cars up, we got separated and he began to cause problems. So the whole framework of Disneyland is, I, I mean, the way you spoke it, it seemed to me that was put into a frame with, with other kinds of entertainments. Um, you know, like a big um, multi-screen cinema and or like what you're going to see when you come to Las Vegas, you know, that kind of those sort of multiplex entertainment things. There was nothing really special in in your description of Disneyland. And one way to think of my reaction is there's kind of only the special which can no longer, the extension of that is, for me, it can no longer be supported by all the practical details and all the stuff you mentioned. But my reaction gets worse to the point where I could never go back to Disneyland. Mm. Just, I couldn't do it. Uh, because of all the practical reasons that you mentioned, and a lot more that I can think of, because I, I get angry because it doesn't live up to the mythos anymore. There are lots of good, if you want to go down the Disneyland conspiracy route with, you know, Walt Disney being cryogenically frozen. Have you heard of the smellitizer? I don't think I have. There is a conspiracy theory that Disneyland controls your mind through the power of smell, that they are constantly pumping different scents into the air that get you to buy things or go here, or do that that the crowds are actually actively being controlled 
by pheromones released into them. Another good one is, um, what, how did it go? Nobody's allowed to die in Disney World. Yeah, you, that's yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Oh, like, look, like you know, like, yeah. There have been cases of people, uh, unfortunately, I think sometimes kids who have been, you know, tried a kid tried to stand up on a ride or something like that, and they. <clears throat> I love going and and looking up conspiracy theories too, because people are always like, "Well, you know, they have to take them to the hospital, and they get pronounced dead at the hospital." And it's like, mm, no. There's something to that, right? Nobody's ever died at Disney World, except for the guy who shot himself in front of Epcot that one time. But he was probably also not pronounced dead there. Well, following on from that, you can see why there's uh, a, an old saying. We're going back to you know the late fifties with the, the opening of Disneyland. If you want to meet a genuinely and legitimately paranoid person, look around at Orange County journalists. You know, anyone who tries to write about Disneyland in any way that they don't want. I mean, that's the biggest conspiracy you know, that, that they have hit men. And I mean, it. Mm -hmm. They they have so much security walking around. And how would you know? Because they're wearing these ridiculous costumes. You know, so at least they plant all these strange uh, seeds of conspiracy. That seems to me to be one thing. It could be as an amusement park ride. It could be a conspiracy machine. You know, come ride the conspiracy wheel. You know, because it's just so weird. I would love to go to a conspiracy themed theme park. You get to, you know, ride in the car and try to avoid the the snipers on the roof and you know, you get abducted by aliens and <laughs> probed for a fee. There's also there's that club in uh there's that, that club in Disney World that's super exclusive. I don't know what goes on in that thing. It costs like $10,000 or something to be a part of this club. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it's uh, it's tucked away somewhere, and I don't know what they do there. But I love to think, you know, how uh, at Bohemian Grove, you know, you have all these wealthy elites wearing animal heads. It'd be cool if it was still a Bohemian Grove thing, but it was all Disney character masks, and there was a yeah, giant, a giant really Mickey Mouse, like a giant Mickey Mouse that they light on fire, an effigy of Mickey Mouse to you know, a hundred more years of the Reich. You know, like that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, that's real cargo profit stuff. I could see that religion really taking off. I wouldn't even have to have the world end to want to be part of that. <laughs> that doesn't even require an apocalypse. No, that's just good, you know, pop culture straight up, right on the money, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that's uh that's a beautiful idea. Mickey and effigy. It's yeah. disturbing how uh, ubiquitous that you can't really even call it a character. I don't think. Well, you you have to, I suppose. How that symbol, just that visualization of the silhouette. You know, there are people in the Congo who recognize that, and I just think that's so awful. It's just it. Uh, 
And I, I, I do a whole riff on, on Steamboat Willie in my book, Eat Jellied Eels and Think Distant mm-hmm. Thoughts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's very strange because there's a lot of uh, old minstrel sh- show racism in Steamboat Willie. Very peculiar. The tune that he's whistling is is Turkey in the Straw with a lot of really complex uh, racist overtones. And I'm a little surprised. There must be a literature about that today because everybody's on top of anything like that. But the mythos of Disney is, I think, what what really was striking me. Let me ask you then in another way of what other, um, well, what's what's an equivalent of, of a theme park? Is there one? Is, is that broad enough in its potential? It's maybe something like Kowloon Walled City? Or something like that. I guess that's more residential. Are you familiar with Kowloon Wall City? Yeah, City? Oh, my word. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. No, no, I don't. I don't. I think, yeah, that that's, uh, there are many, I think there are some interesting equivalents or analogs to that, but I don't think that, that, that it's, uh, doesn't resonate yeah. the same way with theme park. Right, um, right. I'm not sure anything does because I don't think you could put in things like, uh, well, a municipal park like Central Park uh, mm-hmm. or um, some giant sporting facility. I don't think it's like a zoo. Um, I mean, I think the idea of a theme park in a very strange sense is that it is really an attempt to be an alternative world. I mean, it's obviously humble, it's metaphorical, and even Disney's Imagineers and all that money, uh, but it can work down to the most humble, basic level of amusement park, which I find really the most appealing. Uh, The principles are still the same, and they go back to... Well, certainly the 19th century, but really all the way back to the 16th and perhaps, you know, further, depending on how you want to stretch that. But it's. I I think that one of the the key points of it. If you said. How is it defined in terms of function? going back to the form versus function idea in architecture at large, which Bauhaus sort of put you know, forward as a group. Um, who is the market for the theme park? And I think this is what is a startling idea because it's very simple, but I can't, just as we couldn't think of an analog, you know, a second ago, like, well, you know, well, I think there's a good reason because the theme park's answer is everyone. Right. Yeah. 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 It's sort of a self, it's a self-fulfilling idea that you want to go to a theme park because it is a theme park. And of course, everybody wants to go to a theme park. My first thought would have been 
that it's aimed towards children, but that's not entirely accurate. It is aimed towards everybody. That's why they serve beer, right? I mean, everybody's supposed to go there and have, that's why there are so many adult Disney World fans. That's why now they have an entire wing of the park that's devoted to Star Wars to capture the adult children who still obsess over things like Star Wars. But it is an interesting <clears throat> thinking about in terms of, you know, ceremonies, say that a that a Catholic church has for a saint's day or a feast day or Christmas. They're all big events that take place in a kind of, not theme park, but, you know, a festival style of attitude. They're all based around a particular day or reason or story or what have you. But I like what you're saying here, where the theme park is for everybody and it's for everybody because it's for everybody. And that's it. It just exists in that way. Right, right. And I think one thing that does need to be said is and to sort of break from Disneyland and look at theme parks uh, at large, but also back in time. You know, you think back to uh, Coney Island at, at mm -hmm. its absolute mm -hmm. peak, which was, you know, it, it was, you know, it's still there. Uh, so it, you could say it's, you know, it it's not over yet. But at, at the Dreamland era, you know, when it became uh, legendary, you know, because that's what it, it is. It, it, it has a special place in American uh, culture and folklore, literature and film, certainly. That was that was very definitely slanted to the adult market. And I think it's interesting to look at the evolution over time of theme parks and their, their primary focus. And I think it is odd that starting certainly in, in <clears throat> what would be the baby boomer generation, um, the focus is all on kids, you know, and we see that in the marketing generally, you know, and by the time the 60s roll around, you've got cartoons sponsored by sugary cereals and, you know, shoes that will make you run faster and jump higher and, you know, these sorts of games. So there's uh, an increasing uh, sniper focus on children by marketers generally, but I think that is how the slant, the skew moves, particularly in Disneyland. And I think that's what triggers the nostalgia thing, along with arrested development and possibly not descended testicles. Uh, what creates the adult Disney fan, you know, um, which is just a, a beautiful tragedy. I just think that the way you said that, I could just see that as the description on a call sheet for an audition, you know, mm -hmm. and it mm -hmm. just it you'd know. I mean, you'd, you'd get uh, a real group who really had the look down, at least because it certainly has one. But the that's what I think is going on, that that, that, that the history of, of the theme park 
had a very different idea of, well, it believed in the possibility of maturity. And we no longer do. Oh, wow. Yeah, I really like that. I thought that's where you were going. I thought that's where you were going because as you were talking about theme parks being aimed towards children, then obviously the natural extension of that would be to keep people as children forever. Think about how good a business decision it is to arrest the development of all of these kids and keep them as kids with all of kids insatiable appetite for sweets and toys and colorful fun times and whimsy and then give them a salary of disposable income (laughs) (laughs) it's brilliant it's brilliant Yeah. yeah 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 no there's was a particular bit of your note that i wanted to bring up and it was under what you labeled as key point and i really liked this uh The real theme of the theme park as concept is the invention of the middle class. Can you talk about that a bit? Because that is a cool idea. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I think that the notion of class that we have today is really so diluted and unsophisticated relative to what it would have been in the second half of the 19th century. And we don't have the vocabulary for it because it has much more to do than just money and income. It has to do with a position in society. There there are ways that we think about it today, but so often I find they verge into just discussions of, of celebrities who have a kind of inane notoriety, which may or may not last because of of sort of chance more than anything. And if nothing else, what class coming into the end of the 19th century met, both in, say, England and America, and England was so much more class conscious, it meant that a real schism, tear, tug of war between ideas of nature and nurture, what you were born with in many ways, and in terms of also money and, and extended advantage, and what you created yourself. And America just fixated on that. And it, it hit at a time of, of the industrialization. And suddenly there was this massive pulling thing that really was going in uh, a pretty, uh, I mean, you couldn't say a consistent, you could say consistent, not uh, a clear direction. And that buzz of energy and some disposable income and the flood of immigration and the fight, the welter, you know, you think of of like the Lower East Side of New York and the tenements and the whole and the bristling union service. There was this enormous boiling pot of energy that wasn't always good and could certainly be violent, but it was It was energizing in and of itself for the culture at large, and it needed dispersal. And things like um, P.T. Barnum's Dime Museum in Manhattan just weren't big enough. Manhattan wasn't big enough, you know? And there was Central Park, yeah, okay. But there needed to be something. And, of course, in the sweltering heat of damp humidity of summer when you know and the awful gasp of the subway you know 
on a real, you know, mid, you know, late July day. Yeah, I can well, feel it. People, people needed escape from that. So going to the beach, going to amusements there, that was all very natural. So for Coney Island and the Jersey Shore. And I think that the that was a really golden, golden moment. And I, it did last. There were many fires that that could destroy these uh, amusement parks very quickly. But I, I will recommend. Uh, I haven't read anything else by this author, uh, although he wrote he's he wrote Paradise Alley. But this is called Dreamland by uh, Kevin Baker. I and have that it, book. Do you? Yeah, I do. I think it's just fantastic. I every once in a while just will pick up and thumb. He. I don't know. I mean, is it a novel? I don't really think it's a, it, well, yeah, he calls it a novel. It's a historic novel, but it's, I, I read it just, well, just because it's magical. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What do you think the, I, I like the idea of the, the theme park, particularly Coney Island as a release valve for the two factors of, you know, increased, uh, increased uh, spending capacity and also as a necessity for a kind of like libidinal release. So those two things yeah. find their, their place in the theme park. What, what about the theme park in your estimation serves as that release valve? Because there's no, there's no sex, there's no drugs. So what is the theme park? I, there are, there are carnival games not to start answering your own question for you, but yes. what, what, what do you see it as? Okay, well, here's the deal struck. The theme park gave up the freak show and its back room where little Egypt might do her striptease and there'd be some, if not nasty stuff, certainly some naughty stuff. Mm-hmm. And some aspects, some more adult burlesque aspects of the midway toned that down. So they gave away the freak show or repackaged the freak show very because the freak show never goes away. That's one of the great, uh, certainly American uh, truisms about entertainment and popular culture. The freak show will never go away. It only changes form. But it settles into its own groove that it develops actually a quite an amazing consistency of frequency and clarity, despite how difficult it might be to describe, because what they do is hit a sublimated libidinal note in entertainment after entertainment. Everything has a degree of innuendo, at least to mm-hmm. the adult perspective, not to the, the children don't notice it, but absolutely everything. And then there's always some, you know, quietly getting a little bit mo- more overt, like the, the big, you know, hit the pick up the mallet and slam the thing, see if you can drive, you know, mm-hmm. the block up to hit the bell, tests of strength. And a few, it's harder to sort of do uh, the feminine equivalents of that, but certainly the outfits people are wearing, the interactions, 
And the fact, of course, that it's not openly, openly uh, edgy or naughty allows young people to go with at least a little bit, not always the grace of parents, but at least a little bit more grace of the family. And that has a lot to do with the enormous influx of ethnic groups Mm -hmm. with Mm -hmm. big families, Mm -hmm. not, you know, maybe not as much money as other people. And, but certainly more, more family responsibilities, more family animosities, racial issues. There's a lot of reason to go with a group, you know, Mm-hmm. And it's where a lot of coupling off. And then you really have, I think, one of the crucial aspects of any theme park. And this is what, this is another great book, The American Amusement Park. I really recommend this by a guy named Samuelson. And it's, it's a tremendous photographic history with some good writing. But one of the key aspects is, is a flume ride or water ride or the tunnel of love. Ah, now, yeah, yeah. There, right. you know, you just get a monster, beautiful Freudian metaphorical extravaganza, and you're going right down the maw into the, you know, mm-hmm. the vaginal mm-hmm. wonderland of the tunnel of love. And this is where two couples are sneaking off. And think of, you know, the, I mean, one of the best captures of that i think in film is uh hitchcock you know mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i mean i think he's uh he gets that so beautifully uh strangers mm. on the train. and uh it's just it's very disturbing so yeah the tunnel of so does that answer the question i think that what happens is uh sublimation of sublimation yeah yeah really uh, adult naughty edgy stuff to kind of like soft rock you know yeah christian rock <laughs> i uh i th- it reminds me of what we talked about last time about how i used to get really turned on in church and it was because you're just sort of around yes, these people remember. i think that i think that what you just said illuminated the fact that while there might not be freak shows or burlesque shows or peep shows at your average theme park, um, that doesn't make them any less hot, right? Because there's still girls out there on dates and it's still a place to see and be seen. I like the test of strength stuff. It's, It's a place where dudes go to peacock as hard as they possibly can yeah you know Um, and and to to buy shit too right i mean they're out there spending money and they're all having and then there's this sense of danger you go on the tilt to whirl and your girlfriend is oh you know she grabs you right because she's so afraid and you're so you're so strong theme parks are very sexual actually yeah Totally, totally. And, you know, compare it to a drive-in movie theater, you know, in the 50s or 60s with a monster movie. Same idea, get the girl to get into the guy's arms. But it is, it's all about enabling sex and, and wetting the appetite and giving people a chance to strut around and check each other out. And I mean, 
and and it has so many more places to mm-hmm. retreat and hide than say the nightclub mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. which is really loud whatever whatever era it's always been you know th- there's been a conflict between people really hooking up so but that's only one purpose of 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 a theme bar but here's what to round off uh the the middle class appeal and why this was could be seen as a, a sort of spiritual uh i hate to say playground but that's exactly what it is and that that's not a a, a new idea that's an old idea actually of having that kind of strange model of of a uh, sort of heaven or paradise, but yeah, a spiritual uh, playground that it really stopped being that for mm-hmm, class. Mm-hmm. And this connects back to what what you started off with. The reason that hit me strangely is I just wasn't prepared for that sort of really down to basics, experiential, you know, back pocket thing, you know, but when we bring that all the way back around and say, well, in fact, this is part of a larger attack on the middle class, not saying that Disneyland alone is doing it, but it's emblematic of an attack. And the cost of for a family taking, you know, say two kids and one of their friends, you know, to do, no, that can't be done anymore, but for a lot of people. So from the point of view of looking at Disneyland as a possible example of what a secular sacred space would be based on this history of the theme park as appealing or at least welcoming everyone. And of course we know that wasn't quite true that everyone, that idea changed over the years, but the intent just isn't the same. Mm-hmm. And I think that the it, it's kind of the moral and spiritual failure of of Disneyland, emblematically speaking. And I, I mean, I don't even mean anything about the current political issues of wokeness or anything like that at all. I'm talking about this, this sense of, of betraying the welcome to the middle class mm. has mm. undermined one of the, the key elements that might have contributed to that title of secular sacred space. What do you think of that? I like that a lot. I like that a lot. As if the idea is as going into a church is ostensibly free, it doesn't end up being free if you pay your tithes, but as a place where people of all economic backgrounds can gather to focus their energy on one thing, uh, Disneyland offered uh, an affordability and an escapism that is now no longer available to them. You had a really good bit in your text to me that I thought was just so brilliant. And this is totally Chris, but I'm going to paraphrase it because I don't, I don't want it to go away. Um, But this idea of taxidermy arising in the late 19th, early 20th century 
and that coinciding with the kind of loss of the frontier, uh, the, the end of that exploratory era, the death of different species of creatures, it taxidermy became much, much, much more popular. And the idea of that also, you know, the death of the, of the spirit, the shaman, that kind of thing, giving way to things like nightclubs and shopping malls and all that. If you take <clears throat> that framework that you've laid out and say that, okay, so a lot of these non-secular spaces have died and they've been replaced by largely secular ones. It's an even further betrayal to then put those things economically out of reach of people to say that they can't even go there to, to even blow off that kind of uh, steam and get that. They can't even get the ersatz spirituality now. Right. I, I think, I mean, I, that really has hit home to me about this attack on what really is the fundamental demographic or should have been in America. And really, I think any, in, you know, intelligent democracy and the term, the phrasing of that really at least has the potential to include all races mm -hmm. and ethnic backgrounds not saying that it always does by any means but it has no inherent limitations that way and the fact that now, that now has been completely uh abdicated from it makes me think of um a student of mine not a particularly good writer but really nailed this particular assignment with a, a very poignant moment uh, she was recalling her parents getting divorced and her mother breaking down, explaining that she couldn't afford to take her to Disneyland. And it became a source of real shame for the mother. Mm -hmm. and because it, it, it got down to a level competing with other things in terms of status symbols. Yeah. I mean, that would be the category this this writer as a girl, as a little girl, was was seeing it as. It was on a par with whatever her friends were, you know, negotiating right. their positions about. It it might have had a lot more dimensionality. And, and if they'd gone, it might have been a lot more memorable than, say, a new pair of shoes or, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. it was still a commodity. And that's another aspect of this that I think that the the national and therefore I you know spreading around the world the frame of 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 and what we mean I think often when we think of things getting corporatized is is much more uh, basic and much more under our control. It things become commodified, you know. It may be the corporatized is the other end of that, the producing that result. But we have to take some responsibility for letting that experience turn into commodity mm -hmm. and commodification, you know. Um, and that that is exactly, I think, the way to um, that's what I heard in, in your initial response. And I thought, well. That initially stunned me because I was, as I said, thinking kind of mythically of Disneyland, 
and not really considering actually going, you know, in practical mm-hmm. terms. But now that I've processed that through, that makes an enormous amount of sense to me to, to view it that way. And I realized that, that I think most people or a lot of people would have answered just as you did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm just yeah. out of touch with that, you know? No, but I like I like your perspective as well. I mean, it's it's obviously really valuable. Also, this might be completely off base, so we can table this for later. But listening to you talk just now, it occurred to me uh, the idea that the corporation has replaced the church as the as the primary distributor of shame to the populace. Uh, Nice. That might be a cool idea to talk about some other, because when you were talking about this girl's um, essay and how her mother couldn't take her to Disneyland, that on its face doesn't, if you were an alien, it wouldn't make any sense. The alien would say, well, they, she said that they would, she would take them to this colorful place and buy them cotton candy and then something came up and she was no longer able to afford that. So they had to stay home. Okay. What's the, what's the problem with that? But the sense of shame that comes along with that, uh, they've really been cornering that and monopolizing that in a way that the church, I think, used to be able to do. They used to be able to make people feel ashamed for stuff. You know, you make me think that um, I, I, shame is such an important part of of the contemporary situation the the zeit not not zeitgeist uh it's very interesting though that that when i when i think about it i don't hear a lot of of really good commentary analysis explication of of what shame how it's really working today what what are the really the mechanisms of it it seems to be so taken for granted that it doesn't have to validate or, you know, in any way explain itself. It does. It can avoid, you know, breaking it down. And it it really is just, it's a remarkable self-replicating tool, weapon, virus, whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. Well, I think that that was great. Where do you want to go for next time? Because we still have okay, some. Okay, okay. I, I have been thinking, okay. Just just very quickly, though, about taxidermy. I want to say this because it sounds odd, but I do have a little bit of an obsession with it because I had a, an ex- strange experience when I was a very, very young child going back to visit the house where my mother uh, grew up. Uh, David knows Ellen. She's been on, on the show as a guest. And it was a very weird <clears throat> house in Leroy, New York, and my grandfather had a lot of very strange stuffed animals, owls and deer head, and freaked me out. So I, I, I'm a student of it, and I realized, and, and this is something a lot of people don't may not know, that you may think of taxidermy in terms of, you know, bars and places like Montana or Alaska or, you know, maybe diners. You see them in David Lynch films a lot. But Really, taxidermy was an almost universal hobby that was done at a very high level, obviously for the rich, 
but it was done as a hobby and a major, you know, thing for just ordinary people. Mm-hmm. And it became much, much bigger than people hunting and much bigger than rural communities. It was a thing. It was yeah. a real phrase. And the only reason we don't have more evidence of that is because of the materials and the organic mm-hmm. nature of, of the, the creations. It takes a very sophisticated uh, expert to do it and the right materials for the, for the head or whatever to survive. So, but that is the other side of, of, of taxidermy is that's a great way of thinking of the carnival and the circus, you know, the hogskin mermaid, the nun such, all the carnival gaffes and all of that underlying the theme park. So I like to think of, of the, the tunnel of love, lovers paddling along and we can't see what's really in the lagoon. You know, there might be some nasty things in there, but we certainly can't see the Jungian subterranean thing below the pond, the lagoon. I'm going to call this episode, What's in the Lagoon in the Tunnel of Love? <laughs> I like I did it. That's, 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 I was right there suddenly. So that really works. Mm-hmm. I was really there wondering. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, here's my thought for, for next time, because I think we have given architecture a good run. I'd like to, uh, one of the things that I got thinking about with this middle class betrayal uh, was kid homes. You know, the 1930s, 1940s, Sears, Roebuck, and Montgomery Wards had mail order homes. And you look at them and you think, my God, that's a level <laughs> And, you know, really? Seriously? Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not saying that would have been the result. And, I'm, and I think tract homes have not, are, are very, you know, not the same thing at all. But I think middle class housing, going back to one of the earlier things we, we spoke of, I, I made the point that a lot of people don't think of the residents or maybe even where they work as architecture that architecture is only for specialist art, you know, like the Guggenheim Museum or a skyscraper or something. It isn't a principle and a human activity that is all around them in their homes. You know, they don't think of it that way. So to close off with a little bit of a roundup of where architecture fits into culture, and I have just done a nice kind of not a deep dive, but um, back to some of the, the the ten most important architects of of the twentieth century. Arguably, some of them are inarguable, um, and a kind of roundup of what where they're at. And I, I've there's a fantastic interview that I've watched of Frank Lloyd Wright, which is just. Uh, He's obviously one of the 10 architects. It just simply stunned me. It stunned me in so many ways. So I'd like to talk about that. And then to end up on, just as an open-ended question, if architecture is so vital and vivid, vital to the vividness of a culture, where is the architectural 
energy today and how does that reflect these values that seem to be uh well at war or let's look at one of maybe what whatever is the dominant one at the time how is that being expressed what will that mean architecturally and if there isn't an answer to that what does that say about us at large if our architecture has kind of gone into hibernation isn't mm -hmm. that a weird what about buildings hibernating i mean it's mm -hmm. a good question you know central business districts being vacant now you know mm -hmm. everyone working remote you know and then we've got all these homeless people so there's a few things to talk about to wind up architecture and then i'm going to pitch to the idea of looking at one of our other paradigm directions of the influence of photography and film the creation of imaginary secondary tertiary worlds how's that i think that's great i think that's fantastic i think that the what you pitched for next episode <clears throat> very well could run to two because there is a lot there i would like to get your thoughts on uh the philosophy of the design from some of these people like frank lloyd wright etc and then the the philosophical question about what that means for today and its potential lack of any coherent uh, philosophy or teleology would be really interesting and then going into photography i'm so down i'm so ready for a photography okay. discussion Okay, well, look, what you just said about our, uh, the, the architecture thing is really, really important because there is an unavoidable balance put on philosophical aspects of architecture, even by people who would never use the word philosophy. It's, yeah. it's one of those things that just, this is why it's such a fundamental thing. And, and you touched, I mean, that idea, the philosophy is, is what, these uh, 10, and there are probably, you know, 10 others that might not be in that category, but that was how they thought of it. You know, they really did. They knew the, the philosophical angles were absolutely inescapable and, and just the opposite needed to be celebrated in what they were doing in order for it to have any chance of uh, success or, or real value. Awesome. Excellent. I look forward to it. So, is it, is was it my time? The yeah. Bodies yeah. of the dreamers. <laughs> I'm ready. I'm really ready. So, I'm in the body of my wife, and she's in my body. The first thing that I experience is pain, true pain, pain that I didn't realize could exist. I experienced the pain, not just of a period, but of a woman's existence in general. And I suddenly realized that they're much stronger than I gave them credit for initially. She experiences my OCD and is able to finally understand what it's like to be inside of this head how do you deal with this on a day-to-day -day basis? Because, you know, our consciousness is switched, but our neurochemistry stayed the same. So it's a 
delightful little mix there. So for a while, neither of us know how to cope, but we learn. Uh, I begin to exploit her status as a woman of color to write books and get them published. <laughs> oh, wow. okay, okay. She begins to uh, work out and becomes a champion bodybuilder because it's like she's been living with a weight vest her whole life every uh, like anyway now with the pain gone the pain of working out is really nothing the pain of recovery is nothing the funniest bit and what i'll end on because of course where did my mind go immediately sex what's the sex going to be like and i <laughs> thought it would be funny if at first when we were having sex uh me in her body uh, was able to orgasm just multiple times as though the ability to orgasm classically, you know, the man finishes really quickly and the woman takes more time that that's something spiritual and in our consciousness. So I'm just having all of these waves and waves of female orgasms and she's having a bit more of a difficult time. But then I thought to myself, I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would be able to come if I was looking at me the whole time. So that might be a problem. <laughs> oh, dear. So that's what I got. Just kind oh, of a, a little, a little I funny. I love one. that last question. You know, I was in another sort of, I, didn't, I was going to mention this at the top, just the strange value of, revising your opinions or being open to it but for whatever reason i got thinking about descartes because we're always dumping on him and i realized i went back to two of his books uh the passion of the soul and treatise of man which are the two in one he's really trying to work out the human heart and what makes us complex and interesting and soulful and the other he's dealing with cadavers and clockworks so he's really torn this is not the, the the work he's most famous for but i went back to the sort and i revised my opinions and i think it's interesting to uh to hear how you handled that and uh i think the opening I couldn't tell if you were really being sincere there or if you were thinking, well, what's the angle that's going to be commercially successful? Mm -hmm. um, but there's some interesting things going on with that. Uh, I don't know. I did. Did you uh, another title occurred to me while you were saying that? And now I got lost in just listening to your voice. Your voice is becoming more interesting as, as a reading voice. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. You're getting, I appreciate uh, that. You know, I think a, a more control, but also more trust of, of I don't know, it just, it seems really, uh, well, it's it's with the cargo profit sort of, you know, biker, you know, God thing you've got going on, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's only yeah. 30 summers left. There's only, I have to learn how to talk. Cause I only have 36 summers left. Maybe in my, when I have four summers left, I'll have a, a really nice, I think I could hit a really nice Terrence McKenna register. Eventually I could get my, we, we have, we have similar kind of nasally tones to our voices. 
And if I could sometimes you that, certainly do. You have I, some more range than he than he. he yeah. He's he's more eccentric, right. uh, almost right. like on a you know of the in the register of say a Truman Capote. But he doesn't have the range and, and variability that you do. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's yeah. the that kind of that kind of mode is what I'm is what I'm going for. But yeah, that one was that one was fun. I uh, I would have liked to have had. Uh, that's one of the ones that I'd like to think about more um, mostly because I was just really interested in what you were saying about Disneyland, but I did have fun with it. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that you enjoyed it too. Do you have a tip for us today? I've got, uh, yeah. So I've are you going to start with the tool? Do we start with the tool or the tip? How does that normally tool. go? Yeah, we got sort of, we well, we've the been going to tool kind of the bigger broader maybe more conceptual right. more right. fancy smanchy and then the tip being hopefully more more practical yeah. um, but i was I'm, I'm you know getting ready for uh my big solo exhibition at the center on contemporary art in seattle uh, opening night is may 11th if anyone listening knows anybody in seattle or is in seattle Please think about coming along. Tell everybody you know. It's on from May 11th to June 10th. Full um, exhibit. I've got some of the most interesting stuff that I've ever done uh, in multimedia. And the theme is called Ghostscape. So it's very much in our psychogeography, Lost Explorers idea. So not surprising at some point I was dealing with the globe and I was, I was thinking about the poles just the, the sheer intensity of that. And there are very clear geographical, physical, logical, positivist reasons why the poles are what they are, North Pole and Antarctica. But it's still sort of hard to imagine. And I thought to myself, well, would I have that if I was making my own planet uh, I mean, David and I know writers who are making their own worlds in many ways, but some of them, I've known people making their own planets. Uh, consider for a moment then, what if the Earth were half the size it is or twice as big? What would the implications of that be? Now, I think for people who are, even if you're not actively a writer, um, that's a question people can get their heads around. And you start to think about the nature of scale. And one of the things I'm trying to do in my memory consciousness book in progress is look at some of these deep, deep grammars that are so fundamental that they're completely, almost completely invisible and taken for granted by us. And yet they are where so much activity, if we do believe in the embodied brain, is taking place, say, at Gus's age, from birth up to, and we'll be, we'll, you know, it's happening, but it's happening in all of us. There is so much to do with our adjustment and expectations, expectations about scale. And a lot of sculptors, uh, uh, Klaus Oldenburg is a good example, would made a reputation about simply just building on a giant scale, something very ordinary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the, the poet Anne Sexton's 
one of the favorite, my favorite lines of hers is that if a, if a paper clip were giant, it would, it would look like a snowshoe. And I think that's quite beautiful. And I noticed earlier today that in my box of paper clips that the French were for is trombones, mm. you know, the, the bigger paper clips. So I think there's some interesting sort of uh, stuff going on with scale. But the tool is this. Just think now about the notion of scale. There are only two things that are off limits. One is your own physical body, your footprint, your mass, your uh, envelope, and money. Take those out of your thinking for the moment. But try to pinpoint one aspect of life that really speaks out to you about scale. You just need one thought to fix on. And that will, I think, open up some interesting channels because whatever it comes to your mind will lead to other things. That is a deep associative, uh, kind of like a needle's eye, which a lot of threads of association then pass through. That's my contention anyway. And we need to find some of those bolt holes or, or needle's eye. You know, okay, so that's my tool and my tips. Well, I've got sort of two. Uh, they're both much more down to earth and practical. As people who listened to last episode and heard me rambling in my groggy, not quite conscious. One of my favorite bits of this entire show uh, is that is that seven minutes. I think that I think you could have a whole podcast. Of just those, <laughs> just whenever those happen, I think you could do that. By the way, side note, Klaus Oldenburg only recently died, not even a year ago. Is that right? Oh. Yeah, he was 93. So that's, I knew he was quite old. I knew he was quite old. I was surprised. I'm, 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 I actually thought he I was still alive, actually. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, he was an interesting, you know, I, I am sad about it. He did do some. He can't be entirely dismissed, but I think he, it, it is fair to say that he had a shtick, you know? Yeah. I don't uh, like, I don't like it, but I get what it means in the context of, of what you're saying, which I do like, like I'm seeing a big shuttlecock. Uh, it was a big handsaw, a big yeah. spoon with a cherry. Um, not, not really my thing, but valuable to look at and think with, I think. Well, you know, now that you mention and we brought him into this context, this is a beautiful harmonic with the the middle class question of the theme park, because with Oldenburg's sculptures, you have very yeah. large scale municipal fine art. You know, you have this real uh, imprimatur of of art. Yeah, you do. As opposed to the giant ball of twine or the giant lobster that's or the, the giant rocking chair, you know? Yeah. Those yeah. for your average family vacation from the 50s on through now. Totally different spirit, loss of, of innocence, accessibility. It's it becomes kind of an in-joke that in fact the middle class ordinary people may or may not get, but certainly mm -hmm. aren't welcomed in the same way i'm looking okay. at his paintings though and i these are gorgeous yeah he was a fantastic painter 
I, yeah, his sculptures weren't doing it for me, but I'm looking at some of these paintings and really. I agree. I, 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 I certainly don't want to denigrate him as, as in, 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 for his total output. I think, you know, very, very uh, interesting and capable painter. I agree. And, yeah, yeah. you know, you don't have to like everything that everybody no. does. No, of course not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. No, some of these are, wow, these are great. I would, they're, they're writing that line between uh, trippy and cool and actually a little creepy that make them perfect for my home. There's one in particular here that I'll send to you <laughs> that I think is great. It looks like little, this one looks like little sperms, but they're swimming in a coral reef. It's really good. I'll save it and send it to you. Didn't mean to get you off track, but. Uh, no, no. Well, I think that's nothing. This is the beauty of this. There's, there's, you know, we don't, it's not that we don't go overland and into the bush. We do, but I don't think we go off off the track, you know, because because we're lost explorers. But yes. you did remind me that for next time, I think we're in, in just to end in sort of the Disneyland thing of the theme park idea to go back to some of our um, wonderful uh, outsider artist installations whether it's the watts tower or the orange show in houston but that that idea of a private hermetic sacred spaces theme parks and uh the ideal palace of the horse factor chagall and you know chagall in in france uh the uh the coral castle edward Leeds scallon in uh in the everglades i mean this is just I know we love outsider art. Well, um, I think we've come around to. Uh... Oh, did I mention in last episode that I I had a proposed date for when the modern when modernity began? No, tell me. I'm going to save that for our first episode on oh, no influence of I think photography. I lost you, Chris. Film. What? I think in your signal here. I cannot hear you. Whoa. Can you hear me now? Yes. Okay. We're good now. Yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, well, yeah, I'm going to leave you hanging on that. And it's it's really cool and it's dimensional. So it, it's a great lead into to look at. Uh, and, and you can get sort of, uh, I mean, there's a hint in, in it. In terms of, of photography, I think nice. this might be uh, really something that I'm not hearing. I haven't read that much about that really emphasizes the the influence of photography the way that I see it. You know, I hear it coming in from different angles. It's not it's obvious that there's been some commentary on. It. You know, and I'm not saying there hasn't been a lot, but not in the register that I think that we can pursue it. And I'm really looking forward to that. Nice. nice. Yeah. Uh, so are we. The dream is a little bit quieter. It, it's it's really comes down to. Uh, two images that stick with me, but I think that the the background is. I got on to uh, 
a stream on YouTube, a very, very good short. Uh, they're not documentaries. They're really uh, just a compendium of, of uh, artists' work, like de Kooning, uh, Rothko, uh, Duchamp, uh, and just having 30 minutes with these images as a kind of, uh, what I sort of think of as a counter-hypnotic but meditative practice. And in many cases, you know, I'm, I'm very familiar with these works and I, th you can easily think, oh, I've seen these, you know, a million times, but I don't think so. I think that's the beauty and the power of them. And I think they tune up little portions of, of the mind because one of the key, and I have no sense of what this figure meant uh, tonally or intentionally, but it was a beautiful, if you can imagine a full-size pointed cubist golden man with a funnel hat on, which we might associate with the Tin Man in The Wizard of Oz. But if you look at, you know, say, well, Hieronymus Bosch's era paintings, he, he uses this as a device. It's also the sign of, of the doctor who's a quack, quack, you know, it, it's a, it, it, it's, it's a, as frequently used as the big bird nose of, you know, the death doctor, you know, for the plague. So, but it's this beautiful golden sort of very abstract, completely artificial, but not in any way a, a CGI sort of thing. And the takeout I had from it was like a very pronounced vibrational interaction with the static electricity coming off a fairly high voltage cattle fence. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. it, it, you really feel it. There's a kind of, of, urgency and a, okay. and a slight sort of crackle you know there's yeah it's it's invisible but it's it's physical mm -hmm. i had that sense that despite the almost insane but let's say hyper vivid abstraction of this figure that i had a connection with sentience and character and even and i i don't mean this to be contentious but even gender that it was something that was working that those intuitive uh categorical decisions were being made on the basis of what at least in my dreaming mind at the moment was as radically opposed to categories like that mm -hmm. that I could possibly imagine and still have any totemic effigy like you know form you know it just was it was as abstract more abstract even than than a stick figure in a sense even though it was beautifully elaborate it would have been a beautiful thing to have as a, as a piece of sculpture so that was one image and then I I didn't, I wasn't able to recoup more of that dream, 
But uh, I went out on the porch and listened to the wind in my pine tree and looking at the sky and thinking about things. And I went back to sleep, absolutely crashed. But when I woke up in the morning, you, you really could not have told me that I was not physically holding an absolutely beautiful hand-carved crossbow made of oak with these just phenomenally detailed work of inlaid seashells and agates and opals. And it was just, it was both so noisy in its level of design and builtedness. I just said that word. I like that, builtedness. That it was hard to process. And yet the, the chaos of the design. And you see this as a strategy in many cultures around the world. I think the Mexicans have some cases. There are several African patterns that do this. The Indians can do this as in uh, East Indian. But the chaos reaches a point of almost stillness. Yeah. This kind of iconic enfolding energy that and it doesn't suppress anything. It's not like a, an inverted force field or black hole. I didn't feel that. But I felt this uh, just amazement at it. And I remembered, and this is the only thing I took to waking up, I remembered as a child once just blurting out it was one of those things where you say something, you think, who said that? You know, I didn't know, you know, no rehearsal. And I said, and I can't remember what I was referring to, but I said to my sister, that's as amazing as a pretzel. You know, and I haven't, I hadn't thought of that in a long time. So I, was... we've done a lot of dreams on this show. I've told you my dreams. You've told me your dreams. And we always get something out of it. Usually the dreams end the episode on a, a nice poetic note, or we'll go into them and analyze them a bit. <clears throat> we'll have a laugh sometimes, but maybe it's the vividness that I've been seeing things with lately. But when you were telling me about the cubist gold-plated Tin Man and just the vibes you were getting, I, of course, I'm sitting here talking to you, stoic-faced. But in my mind and in my being, I was beginning to experience something that was very substantive in the way that having deja vu feels, I was not having deja vu, but the same quality of it, right? Like you're inside of a liquid goop in your mind. And 
as I was listening to your lovely recounting of that dream, uh, I was I was having, and I'm not exaggerating when I tell you this, uh, something that was very akin to a a low level acid trip, and I haven't done acid in two years, three years, easily before wow. before Gus was born. Uh, no exaggeration, physical sensations. When describing the electric fence, which I have gotten close to with friends before, like you do, uh, <laughs> I I felt like I could feel the squirming tardigrade quirks of the universe on my skin, and I felt a really weird sense of timelessness, and I know that you know, in your recounting of this, you know, you're, you were, you're simply recounting two, two fragments or images of a, of a dream that you were in. But throughout our whole conversation, I've had an odd sense of, again, not deja vu, but like it's cousin, some kind of thing that I can't put a word on. And so this, um, this episode in particular has ended with uh, David in a full-on hypnotic acid trip due to Chris's dream. Well, I think that's so cool because, you know, we've talked about that happens to me when I'm listening to you. I mm-hmm. think there is a kind of neuro-linguistic programming thing and or deprogramming that we both, you know, do. And I think that that you can resonate with people on the, on these same pirate frequencies and have those sort of connections and it is like deja vu and yet it's not that but it's it's uncanny or more yeah. peculiar as yeah. I was in in that same way there's there's something and how our minds grab onto those experiences that are so difficult to verbalize and contain in the prepositional frames and boxes of language that is both, I think, the most maddening and also deeply fulfilling and inspiring experience because we are very close to that electric fence deep inside mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Where yeah. the nerve is, you know, mm-hmm. you know, we're getting close hits. to that. Fence. Yeah, yeah, we're getting close. Yeah. yeah, we're getting close. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's just so. <clears throat> excuse me, it's so bizarre. Uh, yeah, because now, now I feel, I feel really good, but I also feel like I'm under the influence of about a, a gram and a half of mushrooms. So cool, far out, far out, man. <laughs> That's I, I am so there. I think that is a great experience. I think that is where communication, reflection, projection, and you know, kind of shaman-like hallucination can really mm-hmm. open up all sorts of possibilities, you know? I used to have a friend. I still do have her as a friend, in fact, but I haven't spoken to her in a very long time, who has taken hallucinogenics now. Uh, but when I was in college, I would hang out with her and you know, I'd be dropping acid and stuff, be like, hey, do you want some? And she says, oh, no, I I trip. I trip without anything. Like, I just trip 
totally clean. And I always thought, that's bullshit. You can't do that. But I just did. <laughs> so, and, well, you know, like that's, 15 that's, years that's, later, you find out this person's right. That That's really fantastic because I... I groove on that for two reasons. One, I, I really know that experience and savor it and in sort of seek it out, but I don't think you can hunt too hard for it. I think you have to, you know, hunt the animal that comes to you. And those, those, those experiences find you if you're sort of, you know, in the right, right groove. But I've had that experience uh, remember, no, it was not that many episodes back. The the imaginative challenge of the village you created and mm-hmm. the dragon, and I was right there. And then my description back to you, you know, that really, I mean, it was like we mm-hmm. might have converged. And to do that without, you know, playing some computer game, I mean, that was mm-hmm. really uh, completely created in a very difficult to describe space. Mm-hmm. You, know? mm-hmm. you couldn't that say means. that cyberspace, whatever that means. No, no, no. This was more mysterious. This was happening, communicated via cyberspace. Right. But so I, I think that's really cool. You had that experience. And that experience very fairly uh, captures the spirit that, that I woke up with in terms of those, those images. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like the crossbow one too. That one was awesome too. Yeah, that was just that's that was a really great dream thing. But think about my idea, right? Chris's dream segment. Every yeah, okay. once once a week, five minutes of you, you know, it's 4 30 in the morning and you're just <laughs> you're getting it out there, you know. Uh, when I heard that back, I mean when you when you said during the show, uh that I I was falling in and out of sleep. I didn't really know that. I, I hadn't heard it. I just, I, I did it and I just sent it off to you. But when I listened back, you're absolutely right. I really am. And <laughs> it's, it's so a, fun to listen yeah. to because they're, you know, you're, you're, you're talking, it's like, and we're on the run. And that's you waking back up is the breath. Yeah, you know, you yeah. wake back up with the breath and keep talking. Uh, it's very interesting to hear that documented because I think the way that our minds put together our uh, just waking up states, it's 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 very uh, revisionist in a way. But when you hear it, yes. you hear exactly how that thing is happening. I had a very interesting experience waking up this morning. Uh, I woke up at 6.30 I'd been having some dreams too, but unfortunately I can't remember them. Um, And I woke up and I was immediately struck by the thought of you need to be present in your body for whatever it is that you're about to do with the specific intention. I don't know who was having the intention, but with the specific intention to just watch what's happening. And so I woke up and I blinked around and I did the thing you're not supposed to do, right? I picked up my phone and looked at it just to look at the time. But I turned that phone on and the light hit me and I felt like if you were looking at a beaker that had a boiling liquid rising in it, I felt my cortisol levels. I was in touch 
with the cortisol in my brain, but it felt like a full body experience of like filling up with cortisol, fight or flight, stress. And and my body said, pay attention to that. That's why you don't do that in the morning, right? You don't need to do that. And so after that, I didn't drink coffee. I didn't have any nicotine, nothing. I just tried to vibe during the morning because we we're we're so out of it we don't even know that we're out of it and we just do these automatic things like oh check phone hit vape drink coffee and your brain is literally just going over potholes the whole time just and then an hour later you piece it all together and say oh i was really tired this morning it's like you were in a war dude (laughs) the shit was crazy Yeah, and yet, and yet, I mean, the interesting thing, and I think you've just reminded me with your description of it, that there's something gorgeously authentic about that state. And there's something capable in terms of improvisation. I mean, sometimes it's, it's ludicrous. There, there can, but I think when you, when you, when it appears to be ludicrous, when I'm just thinking about it now, it's often in TV shows and movies doing a kind of making a statement about sleepwalking or, or it's people with, you know, Alzheimer's and people who are crazy. I, I think that the sleep state isn't really very honestly recorded by many people because it's difficult to do. It's caricature, you know, mm-hmm. there's something very uh, that we should pay attention to about it if we could, if we could. Mm-hmm. All right, folks. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, everyone. See you next time.